This is from uh, John chapter 19, uh, verses 25 through 30. You can follow along as I uh, read. This is what the Apostle John writes. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had finished and when he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's uh, let's pray this morning, shall we? Father, we're grateful on this uh, Sunday morning to come together to uh, worship you. And Lord, that is um, the goal and the focus of this morning, is to recognize who you are, um, your holiness. And as we think about this week ahead of us, your holiness demanded a perfect sacrifice. And so we thank you this morning as we think about the cross, as we think about Jesus and uh, the sacrifice on the cross that he made for our eternal redemption. Lord, we pray that as we look into your word this morning, that you would open up our uh, hearts and minds to what you have for us today. And we thank you for who you are and what you've done and what you will do in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we're going to look at... uh, the cross this morning, appropriately, and to think about the cries from the cross. If you want to know what was on Jesus' mind in his dying hours, we don't have to guess because the scripture tells us that seven times Jesus spoke from the cross. Jesus hung on the cross from 9 a.m. Friday morning to 3 p.m. that in the afternoon. He spoke three times very early on. And then there was three hours of silence. Midway through, hanging on the cross, he spoke a fourth time, and then very close to the three o'clock hour, he spoke three more times. So we're going to look at those, those cries from the cross, and we realize that the cross is really the most significant event in world history. As many of you know, I grew up in a... Pastor's home, went to a a Christian school that uh, um, was begun back in 1961, a long, long time ago, and uh, we we had a a small school, but um, I I enjoyed that um, uh, Christian school immensely. I remember my world history teacher from my junior year, Miss Eleanor Taylor, who taught history from a biblical standpoint, and she said, history is his story. And that's what we're looking at this morning, the unfolding of God's story. Someone has said, the cross is the hinge upon which the door of history swings. And so as we think about the cross, we're going to think about these seven statements and what they mean. Erwin Lutzer, in his book about the cross, writes, Dr. Lutzer, former pastor of Moody Church, we need to embrace the cross, not just as the only way of salvation, but also as a way of living. There are significant lessons to be learned from the seven cries from the cross. 
And so this morning we're going to look at these seven cries. Uh, we won't have time to go in depth. Uh, each of these statements, we could spend an entire message uh, unfolding them. But we're going to take an overview this morning as we think about um, the significance of Jesus' statements from the cross. So let's uh, let's dive into this and look at statement number one. Uh, cry number one is a, is a cry for pardon, a cry for pardon. The first cry from the cross is really a prayer. It's an amazing prayer from Jesus to God his Father. Amazingly, it's a prayer for forgiveness. It's a prayer that fulfilled prophecy. Because in Isaiah chapter 53, that um, chapter that is uh, all about the suffering servant Jesus, written 700 years before Jesus came, Isaiah 53 verse 12, Isaiah writes the last part, he bore the sin of many and he made intercession for his transgressors. So here's Isaiah writing 700 years before the cross and he says, Jesus will not only die for people's sins, but he will make intercession for his transgressors. He will pray for them. And that's this first cry. That's this first uh, prayer. It is a cry for pardon. Let's look at it in Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 34. Here's how Dr. Luke uh, records it. Two other men, both criminals were also let out with Jesus to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Now here's the prayer, here's the cry. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. What an amazing prayer that Jesus is making for the very people that are taking his life, that are crucifying him, that are pounding nails in his hands on that furka, that cross beam, nails through his feet. And Jesus is praying for them. Jesus is praying a prayer of forgiveness. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And when we think about that, They really didn't know what they were doing, at least the the people that put him on the cross, the Roman guards, the Roman soldiers. Crucifixion was very common in the first century. It it was, on average, there would be about 30,000 crucifixions a year. They, They knew what they were doing. They did not know or acknowledge who they were doing it to. And so Jesus gives this amazing prayer and the tense of the prayer uh, indicates that perhaps he was praying it over and over again. Perhaps as they were nailing those, uh, pounding those nails into the palms of his hands and into his feet, as he was doing that, Jesus is praying over and over again, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. It's really a model of uh, of Scripture, as we, we saw last week when um, Jesus fleshed out what humility is by I'm not only saying that greatness in my kingdom comes from the lowest one, the servant. You want to be great, serve. And he he models that by washing the feet of his disciples. Here Jesus illustrates his teaching from the Sermon on the Mount early in his ministry. Matthew chapter 5. 
He writes, or Matthew records, You have heard that it was said, Love your enemy, neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. And Jesus is praying for those who are executing Him. He's fleshing out Matthew chapter 5 and in praying for those who are His enemies. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now when we look at this prayer, we have to realize this is not a prayer for universal forgiveness. Some people might look at this and interpret this like, well, Jesus is forgiving everybody. It's just a blanket forgiveness. That's not what Jesus is saying. This is not a prayer for universal forgiveness. My theology professor, Dr. Victor Matthews at Grand Rapids Baptist Seminary, used to say that Christ's death on the cross is sufficient for all, but is efficient for those who believe. It's sufficient to pay for the sins of the world, but it's only efficient when when we by faith receive it, when we sign our name on that check and endorse that check that Jesus is the only way and our trust is in Him. The Bible does not teach universal salvation. About ten years ago, there was a great controversy in evangelical circles when a pastor on the western side of the state of Michigan in a very large, influential church wrote a book entitled Love Wins. And and the premise of that book basically was saying that, guess what? In the end, love wins and, and everybody makes it to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. Repentance is an essential part of the gospel. That was John the Baptist's message. When John the Baptist came on the scene, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, when Jesus began his ministry, Matthew 4.17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And so repentance is the essential part of the gospel. So was this prayer answered? Well, Jesus' prayer was answered. There was forgiveness for those who were crucifying Jesus. For those who recognized who He was and put their faith in Him. The Roman centurion who was basically in charge of the execution of Jesus, Matthew chapter 27, verse 54, says when the centurion and those who were with Him who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that happened, were terrified, they exclaimed, surely He was the Son of God. So as they're observing all these uh, events that are happening, the the darkness from noon till three, the, the earthquake, the centurion came to understand that this is the Son of God. And many people who were there uh, at the time of the crucifixion also became followers of Jesus. Seven weeks later, on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and preaches a message in Jerusalem, not very far from where Jesus was crucified. And he too preaches a message of of repentance. And what happens? 3,000 people, many of them who probably were involved in the crucifixion of Jesus, at least as as bystanders and as the crowd uh, persecuting and yelling and 
putting insults to Jesus, came to faith in Jesus. So Jesus' first statement, His first cry on the cross was an incredible prayer for pardon and forgiveness. Well, he made a second cry, and the second cry is a cry of assurance from Luke chapter 23, verse 43, a cry of assurance. Dr. Luke records in Luke 23, and let's begin reading in verse 39, these words, one of the criminals One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, earlier in the account of of the cross, uh, Matthew records that both thieves initially were hurling insults at Jesus. But something changed in the heart of one of them. Something changed in in the in the heart of the other, the one criminal that that cried out to Jesus. We might ask, what was it that changed? A man that started out insulting Jesus and by the end putting his faith in Jesus. We don't know for sure. The the simple generic answer is that obviously the Spirit of God worked in his heart. Perhaps it was listening to the prayer of Jesus. Perhaps that criminal heard Jesus praying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Perhaps it was the sarcastic testimony of the crowd that Matthew records where they were saying, He is the King of Israel. Perhaps he read the the sign that Pilate hung over the cross that said, This is the King of the Jews. But remarkably, this dying man cried out to Jesus. And he made a request. He acknowledged that Jesus was a king because he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Again, Dr. Lutzer writes, this man believed in Jesus when it appeared that Jesus was entirely helpless to save anyone. He's putting his his faith in, in a person that's being executed on a Roman cross. In fact, he writes, it appeared that Jesus appeared to be needing to be saved. This man believed before darkness settled over the land. He believed before the earthquake. He believed before the veil in the temple was torn in two. He believed before the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus answers him by giving him a cry of assurance. Verse 43, Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, today... This very day, you will be with me in paradise. What a great promise. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, absent from the body, present with the Lord. 
Charles Spurgeon said, this man who was our Lord's last companion on earth was Jesus' first companion at the gates of paradise. This very day, you will be in my presence. That's a great promise. That's a great hope for all of us who who have our faith in Jesus. And it becomes a reality in in that um, moment that unless Jesus returns in our lifetime, will come to all of us. Our good friend of 35 years, Dr. John Van Team, passed away Friday night. Diagnosed with cancer in uh, early December of last year, <clears throat> 67 years old. Um, great man of a uh, family man <clears throat> who loved loved God and loved others. Was able to visit him about ten days ago in hospice in Jackson. Had about a half hour visit with John. Went back on Thursday of this week. Um, was able to visit with Cindy, and it was very obvious that John was in his closing days. I got up yesterday morning and read the text where Cindy writes, the the light of my life has been extinguished, but I still have the light of the world with me. And I wrote her back some words of encouragement and I quoted this verse from 2 Corinthians 5, absent from the body, John's in God's presence. And so it was a cry of assurance today, this very day. Not soul sleep, not a, not a holding period. This very day, you will be with me in paradise. Well, the third cry is a cry of compassion. A cry of compassion. John chapter 19 we read it in our scripture reading. It shows the heart of Jesus. If there's ever a time when you would expect someone to be focused on themselves, it would be in their dying moments. And here we see Jesus in his dying moments, not focused on himself, but focused on others. William Barclay writes, commentator, there is something infinitely moving in the fact that Jesus, in the agony of the cross, in the moment when the salvation of the world hung in the balance, thought of the loneliness of his mother in the days when he was taken away. We read about it in uh, John 19. Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. That's John, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. Now we can assume, and most students of the Bible assume, that uh, Joseph has long been gone. Uh, Joseph's last uh, mention in Scripture is in the Gospels when, uh, remember the story when uh, Mary and her family and Joseph went to the temple 
And uh, they were there for a, a celebration and they're leaving the temple and they get part way home and they're like, they're missing somebody. <laughs> and they go back and it's Jesus is back in the temple and he's talking to the scribes and the, and, uh, the teachers of the law and they're amazed at his knowledge. Jesus was 12 years old. That's the last mention we hear of Joseph. So Joseph has passed off the scene and here's Jesus, as someone has said, is the oldest son in a single parent home is providing for his mother. Mary, behold your son. John, behold your mother. Now, tradition tells us that John uh, took Mary from that time on to his home in Ephesus, and John cared for Mary. James 1.27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And that's what Jesus did. He, in his dying moments, cared for his mom and entrusted her to the care of the disciple John. Now we could ask the question, why didn't Jesus have his half-brothers care for Mary. I mean, after all, Jesus had other brothers and sisters. In Matthew 13, 55, Matthew lists four brothers, we could say half-brothers of Jesus, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Why didn't he entrust Mary to his half-brothers? Well, perhaps a couple of reasons. Number one, they were probably not in Jerusalem. They were probably in Galilee. But maybe more significantly, John chapter 7 verse 5 tells us, John writes, even Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. His own brothers did not believe that he was the Messiah. And so Jesus entrusts the care of his mother to one of his disciples, John. Now, it's interesting that after the resurrection of Jesus, we discover that Jesus' brothers became believers. But it wasn't until after the resurrection. In in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we we read that uh, after the ascension of Jesus, remember there was a group of believers, about 120 of them, they were gathered in the upper room having a 10-day prayer meeting waiting for Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it lists the disciples and verse 14 says, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. Those brothers were there in that original group of 120 believers, and they eventually came to faith in Jesus. Well, let's look at cry number four. It's from Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 and 46. It's a cry of anguish. Matthew records these words. Cry number four from the cross. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, 
Jesus cried out in a loud voice. It's recorded, John records the, the Aramaic. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a cry of anguish. The first three cries were made in the light of day. The last four statements were made in utter darkness. John records that at noon, the land became dark. Jesus cries out in this cry of anguish, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of all the prayers recorded in the Scripture, this is the only one where Jesus does not address God as His Father. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. But here he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Jesus' darkest hour, the fellowship between God the Son and God the Father that had been established from eternity past for three hours was now broken. For the first time ever, Jesus feels not the fellowship of God the Father, but, but He feels the, the rejection. God the Father must forsake His Son. He must turn His back on His Son. Why is that? It's because the sins of the world are on Jesus. It's because of the song that we sang earlier. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, and God cannot look on sin. And so God had to, the Father had to turn His back on God the Son as every sin in the world, every sin past, present, future, your sin, my sin, was placed on Jesus. And Him says, were you there when they crucified my Lord? It asked the question, and in one sense we were, because our sin was on Him. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And in these dark hours, Jesus legally became guilty of our sin. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's really a, a, a quote from a Messianic psalm, Psalm chapter 22. A thousand years before the cross, David writes in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Here's the answer. You are enthroned as the Holy One. Ah, there. That's why God had to forsake His Son. Because He is holy. And so Jesus feels not only the... The, the physical pain and anguish of the cross, but he, he feels that emotional pain, the, the separate uh, rejection and for, being forsaken by God the Father. Martin Luther wrote, God forsaken by God, who can comprehend that? In one sense, Jesus died alone, much like many people today. One of the horrific fallouts of the COVID pandemic. 
said hundreds of thousands of people in our country and around millions around the world have, have had to die alone, separated from their family, separated from the ones that they want to be closest to. And in one sense, that's how Jesus died. Separated from the intimate fellowship of God the Father. Well, there's three more cries from the cross, and uh, we're not going to um, be able to get through all of them, so I'm just going to briefly um, mention them this morning, and then we'll look at some application thoughts here. Uh, cry number five was a cry of suffering from John chapter 19, verse 28. It reminds us of the humanity of Jesus, that he was what the God-man, 100% God, 100% man without sin. And Jesus on that cross cries out a cry of suffering, I am thirsty. So they take some vinegar on a sponge and they give it to Jesus' lips. And it really prepares him for cry number six, the cry of victory. Recorded in John 19.30, the Apostle John records for us, when he had finished, uh, when he had received rather the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. The other gospels record that he said this in a loud voice, and they record again the Aramaic. It was a loud cry. The Aramaic word was to telestai. It is finished. It is complete. The Savior who had been on a life mission life purpose, to seek and to save the lost. And now that sacrifice has been made. It's a victory cry. It is finished. The seventh cry was a cry of submission. The last time he spoke, Luke twenty three forty six, Father, into your hand, I commend my spirit. He's submitting his life back to the Father. Earlier in our study of John, in John chapter 10, where Jesus is saying he's the good shepherd, Jesus says in John 10, 18, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. Jesus willingly submitted his life and he committed his life back to his Father's hands. Well, this morning we're going to look at just a few lessons from the cross, <clears throat> from these cries on the cross, and we want to look at, at four of them that perhaps we can apply to our lives, not only recognizing that uh, the Christ from the cross teaches that Jesus is the only way of salvation, but we can also learn some lessons about how to live. And so let's look at uh, the first lesson here, <clears throat> uh, life lesson number one from the cry of pardon. And it's this, we are commanded to pray for those who have hurt or harmed us. This is from the prayer of, of, of forgiveness that Jesus prays, <clears throat> the amazing prayer of forgiveness. And he's really fleshing out as we looked at Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44. Pray for those who 
harm you. Pray for those who persecute you. And so all of us in this fallen world in which we live have people who have hurt us, some deeply, who have harmed us, who have done us wrong and injustice. Have we ever prayed for them? Because that's what Jesus tells us to do. Do I pray for those who have harmed me? Jesus prays this this prayer. And it's a model prayer. Do I pray for those who have hurt me or harmed me? Jesus prayed a prayer of forgiveness. And for those who put their trust in Jesus, even even those who were nailing Him to the cross, if, if they repented of their sins and asked for forgiveness, Jesus offered them salvation and forgiveness. And He asks us to do the same. Be kind. Something that's missing in our culture. Tender-hearted toward one another. Forgiving one another just as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And so forgiveness for a believer, for someone that comes to us and asks for forgiveness, forgiveness is not an option. We don't say, well, I'm going to wait and I'm going to kind of make you pay for that and then I'm going to... No, we're commanded to forgive. Someone has said, forgiveness sounds like a wonderful idea until you are the one who has to do it. And so, here's this um, model. Um, Do we pray for those who have hurt us or harmed us? Uh, Number two, life lesson number two. A person has until their last dying breath to put their faith in Jesus. They have until their last dying breath to put their faith in Jesus. And here's the thief on the cross who no doubt lived a, a, a horrible life. And in his last hours on the planet, he puts his faith in Jesus. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, it speaks to the, the issue that um, we need to make sure that Jesus is our Savior now because there's no guarantee we, that you'll get an opportunity if you don't know Jesus to put your faith in Him in your dying moment. Some people don't know they're dying and their life is taken very quickly from them. And so that's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6.2, Now is the accepted time of salvation. Don't wait until your dying moment. You, you may not get that opportunity. Put your faith in Jesus now. Third life lesson. As the body of Christ, we are called to care for those who are in need. This is from Jesus' statement to, to John and his dying moment, he's what? He's, he's caring for his mother. He's making sure that she is cared for. Just as Jesus asked John to care for his family in his absence, we are called to be what? The hands and feet of Jesus as the body of Christ. Jesus has ascended to heaven, but he gives us the responsibility to care for one another. One author writes, we are Jesus' brothers and sisters. Widows need someone to take care of them. 
Single mothers need surrogate fathers for their children. The sick need someone to minister to them and care for them. Our aging parents need care. We are His body. We are His hands. We are His feet. And just as Jesus modeled care for His mother in His dying moment, we as the body of Christ have a charge and a responsibility to care for those around us, for those who are part of the body of Christ, for those in need. We are indeed to be His very hands and feet and lips of love and care and compassion to others. Lastly, lesson number four. We are either saved by Jesus' rejection, and I'm talking about this rejection from God the Father when when Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you rejected me? Why have you turned your back on me? We are either saved by Jesus' rejection, or we must bear our rejection for all eternity. God must either inflict punishment or assume it. And Jesus chose the latter. He assumed our punishment. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Peter writes, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross that we might die to our sins and live for righteousness. And so, uh, we have a choice to make. We either put our faith in Jesus, and because of His rejection by God the Father for those three hours, we have the gift of eternal life, or if we reject that offer, then we must bear our rejection for all of eternity. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Summarizes the gospel. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the message of salvation. And that's the message of the cross. That's the message for every one of us, and that's the message that will change the world. Let's thank God for the cross, shall we? Father, thank you for thank you for your the willingness of your Son Jesus to go to the cross for us. For the one who was perfect the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who took upon the sin of the world. Lord, we are eternally grateful. Thank you for the salvation that we have because you paid our sin debt. Therefore, being justified in your sight, there's no more condemnation. We have been forgiven. Because we've been forgiven, help us to be a forgiving people. Lord, help us to have the, the courage to do the thing that's not the natural thing to do, but Lord, help us to model Jesus by praying for those that have harmed us. By praying for those that have hurt us. Lord,
Help us to model the life of Christ by caring for one another. For our family members. For our church family. For those in our neighborhood and those in our community. Lord, may we be the the hands and feet and lips of Jesus to them. And then, Lord, we thank you that you endured the pain, the suffering, the physical suffering, the the emotional suffering of being separated from your Father and forbearing our sins on the cross. Lord, we say thank you. We say that we love you. We thank you for the hope that this gives us. That if you should tarry in our dying moment, we do not have to fear death, but we will realize that our last breath here will be followed up by our first breath in your presence. Thank you for the cross. We'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.